I appreciate you taking the time out of the afternoon. Um, I watched the documentary a whole bunch of times over the last few weeks, and I really, really, really enjoyed it. Oh, good. Um, you know, it's a, it was a, my first documentary ever with, with Judy Laster, the uh, director of the Woodsall Film Festival. And, of course, you know, we uh, use Bester Ross. Uh, you know, she's Bester, Bester Ross. Uh, I, I, I think she made the American flag. No, but with Bester Cram. Um, you know, Judy and I had worked together for years with, um, we combined the Woodsville Film Festival with uh, my Debbie Blue Foundation, which I had until I joined Johnny Winter's band, where we provided health care for music, blues musicians. And we combined for years and years. And over those years, we presented Dr. John, Robert Cray, Delbert McClinton, Johnny Winter, Jim Belushi, the Los Lobos, Johnny A, Honey Boy Edwards, Coco Taylor, Dickie Betts. I mean, the list goes on and on. But at the end of every one of these festivals where we would raise money for musicians and filmmakers, we'd say, you know, one of these days we should make a movie, you know. And then... I don't know, you know, these documentaries take a while to make because uh, you keep running out of money and have to raise some more. Um, so about six years ago, whenever it was, she said, let's make a movie about James Cotton. And I was, you know, oh, my God. I mean, you know, he's my lifelong friend. Um, he called me dad. I called him. Uh, I mean, I called him dad, and he called me son. And, and um, you know, so we made our first film with, with Bester Cram who Judy had already worked with considerably because he's such a uh, filmmaker of note. You know, if you walk into his office, it's like a wall of awards. And uh, so it was our, uh, for Judy and I, it was our first film. And we ended up um, uh, one of five finalists nationwide for the Library of Congress Ken Burns Prize for Film, which is about a, a big, the biggest award you can get as a documentarian. And sat next to Ken Burns uh, at the uh, Library of Congress, and eventually got a check for twenty five thousand dollars, which paid to license two of the songs. Um, uh, and uh, it was just a great movie to make, and, um, and we, we we wanted to make it more than just a biopic about about James. We wanted to kind of uh, show the evolution of um, the African American culture uh, from the time of. Um, when he was on the plantation until he was an international icon. So we had a great time making the movie. I'm thrilled that you liked it, and, and it's been extremely successful for us. Yeah, I thought it was... That's that's an interesting way to take it, because you, you're you right. You didn't just touch on Cotton's life. It, it gave me an appreciation for not only him, but where he came from, and even all the other, you know, Southern and and black blues musicians that you know i feel like as a as a relatively younger person discovering these these folks in you know the middle of my life they seem like they're my brain frames them like rock stars and they didn't live that life as as much as we think they did well yeah um it, it, like i say the reason one of the reasons the film was so successful, and, and we um, got the Founders Award at the International Black Film Festival, and they, they screened us um, 
at the National Museum of African American Music, you know, um, and we uh, did it really well at the Rhode Island Black Film Festival. And I think one of the reasons is just because of that, because we showed, you know, you know, I mean, Keb Moe was really great in the movie. You know, he, he talks about, you know, growing up as an African-American, and then the buddy guy alludes to some stuff as well. So it, it's, it, it's we show James Cotton's amazing life in the context of, um, of, 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 of black culture, and I think that's one of the reasons why the film is doing so well, is it's not just a, a straight-ahead biopic. How did you first meet Cotton? Um, I, I kind of um, introduced myself to him. Oh, I'm, I'm in a hotel now. There's, they're, they're doing some drilling next door. I was wondering what that was. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, you know, I, I, um, I had a radio show for five or six years here again until I joined Johnny Winter's band, and then I couldn't maintain it. But um, the reason I mentioned that is almost every blues musician that, that I um, interview, we, we have a moment. You know, Bonnie had her moment at, at a campfire when I, I, the counselor started playing Tom Rush's version of Can't Judge a Book. And, uh, you know, James Cotton had his, uh, when he heard Sonny Boy Williamson on the radio. And, and, and all blues musicians have, like, this moment. And... You know, so so I had that moment when I was young, uh, when I first heard live blues harmonica. I, I was just blown away. I I, I I I'd never heard anything like that before. So you know, I, I you know, so that was in a drug band uh, by a drug band, and I eventually within six months I was the front man for that drug band. Even though I had you know, because I learned how to play harmonica well enough in six months to at least do that. Um, so, you know, I, you know, I just started going downtown Detroit. Downtown Detroit was a huge, huge blues town back then. We had all these local guys like Johnny Bassett and uh, Little Sonny and Alberta Adams. And then, of course, it was three hours from Chicago. So, you know, Muddy Waters, Buddy Guy, Junior Wells, uh, James Cotton, there were always unbelievable blues bands, T-Bone Walker, you know, there were always unbelievable blues bands in town. And there were probably five or six different venues, you know, back in those days, you know. So, uh, you know, I just made a point to go see all these, all these guys. And, you know, Cotton was such a powerful, powerful entertainer and harmonica player, you know, in retrospect, I really think that, that, that you, you, you you know, even though everyone always says it's Little Walter or Sonny Boy Williamson is the greatest, well, Cotton learned to play exactly like both of them um, and and also took it in a whole new direction. So I, I really do think he was the best ever. Um, but anyway, so, so, you know, as a little kid, I just started, you know, in those days, you're fearless, you know. Um, well, Mr. Cotton, you know, can you show me how you hit those high notes and stuff like that, you know, and... Of course, he'd be trying to get a hotel key, for, you know, for some, trying, to, trying to get some girl to come back to the hotel or something, and he'd kind of be pushing me away, but finally I wore him down. 
And, um, you know, he realized he's going to have to show me some stuff or else I, I would keep, uh, you know, <laughs> getting in the way, getting in the way of, of a possible romantic interlude. Um, so, uh, you know, we, I, I met him when I was 16, maybe 17 at the latest. And, um, you know, once I started my band and we started playing together on, on, on the same bill, uh, many, many times, um, uh, we became very friendly, and and oftentimes uh, he would call me up on stage. Uh, he'd play one song with me, and then he'd leave the stage, and I would front 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 his band for a couple of songs. And you know, Junior Welch used to do that with me too. He'd call me up up on stage and leave. Now, one time, I one time I finished his whole set. <laughs> Anyway, so, um, so, so I met Cotton uh, when I was a kid, um, and I met him because, I, you know, I, in those days you could just walk up to these guys and you could just walk into their dressing rooms and start saying hello. You know, there was no security to speak of, you know. That is a completely different concert-going life than I feel like I'm used to. Um, you know, I, I kind of, you don't really think about any musicians really anymore being all that approachable. Yeah, it's true, and I remember uh, <laughs> I, one of these shows I did with Buddy Guy. They're going, I, you know, and I was actually, I, I think it was on the, I was high on the bill that, that, I might not have been on the bill that particular day, but they said, I don't know, you know, you you, you got to be on the list to see Buddy Guy and this and that. And just, I said, listen, just tell them James Montgomery's here because in those days, sometimes Buddy Guy would leave his band at home to save money. And we would be Buddy Guy's backup band for for a, a, a New England swing, and uh, you know he loved playing with our band, and we were really good, and um, and he could save all that hotel money and travel money and put it in his pocket. So, um, and then I remember one time when we played Buddy Guy's club, you know, speaking about you know inaccessibility. The um, the manager of the club called me and said, you know, buddy guy, find out you're playing here tonight, so he's going to come down. And and he said, so make sure when you talk to him, you, you call him Mr. Guy. <laughs> I said, I'm not calling him Mr. Guy, for God's sakes. I knew, I knew him before you were born. I am not calling him Mr. Guy. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, I'm supposed to say, hi, Mr. Guy. No, I don't think so, you know, but anyway. So when you and, met, you know, and I played with it, you know, he is, does appear in our movie, um, the James Cotton documentary, Bonnie Blue, which was the name of the plantation Cotton blew up, grew up on. It's called Bonnie Blue, James Cotton's Life in the Blues. Um, but the night that um, the, the night that we did that interview with him and Tom Hambridge, um, you know, he called me up on stage, and I was up on stage with him for twenty minutes uh, playing and. Uh, and and there's actually uh, somebody actually filmed that. They, you know, the, the filmmaker who was there to cover the interview actually filmed that. So, so I do have some recent tapes of me actually playing with Buddy Guy, which were probably made like maybe this, maybe a couple of months before COVID. So when you got left up on stage fronting Cotton's band and such. Did you did you even notice or did he just did he just kind of slide off into the wings? Well, he called me up and then uh, you know and then um, after the first song he was just uh, you know give me the nod and you know and then BB uh, King did that to me when I was like, when I was really young. 
I went over really big, so BB said, James, they're all yours, and he took, and this was at a live broadcast on WBCN, so I didn't have time to, like, you know, well, okay, guys, what songs do you know or anything? I just counted off a shuffle that I knew they all knew. Five Sights of the Blind, it was the, the B-side of his first Kent 45, and I knew Sonny Freeman, the drummer from that, and, um, and I had played with B maybe two times at that point as an opener. And I, and I went up with a nine-piece band on a live broadcast and, and didn't even, you know, didn't even, there wasn't even any dead time. I turned around, I said, I say to the blind key of A from the five, double up with me on the horns and counted it off, you know. Um, so when you get, you know, once you get to a certain point, uh, I'm playing with Jimmy, I'm in Detroit right now, and I'm playing with Jimmy McCarty for Mitch Riding the Detroit Wheels and Cactus. I'm playing with him on Thursday. Um, the, the two days from now, and uh, uh, well, I guess tomorrow. Now that I think about it, but you know, we'll just get together and we'll play. You know, we'll, we'll pick songs that we that we all know, and, and and even if we throw a couple originals in there, by the time you've been doing this as long as I have, the idea of just sitting down and everybody just playing and having everything come out right. Uh, you know, if, if, you, if you've been playing for 50 years and you can't sit down and jam and have everything sound good, if, if I can quote James Cotton's uncle, you was in the wrong business, you know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. um, so anyway. Some, something that struck me was the kind of relationship that, that Cotton had with Sonny Boy Williamson and that, that they seem to have a very... Um, I. I can't put a word on it, but... Um, well, but his, his was, you know, I mean, J James Cotton, eventually, by the end of his life, he called me son, I called him dad, I mentioned that earlier. But in the case of James Cotton, and, you know, you know, I found out things about Cotton when we made this movie that I didn't know, you know. I mean, obviously, we interviewed so many different people uh, from so many periods of his life that, uh, you know, there were things, and I, I knew that, he was a direct disciple of Sonny Boy Williamson's, but I, I had never known that that at one point when Cotton was very young, Sonny Boy, I knew that Sonny Boy had moved up to Milwaukee at one point, but I never knew that when he moved up to Milwaukee, he gave his band over to, he gave the, the Sonny Boy Williamson band over to James Cotton as the band leader. Um, and, and, I, I, and, I, and I wasn't, you know, as close as I knew that they were, I didn't know that um, and I knew that Cotton's uncle had introduced him to Sonny Boy, but I was unaware that that at that point, Sonny Boy Williamson basically adopted him and and raised him as a son. Um, you know, it, it is an amazing story that that we're able to tell with this movie. Yeah, it's definitely incredible. I mean, there's there's so many of those pieces um, that made me think of wanting to ask you how cotton was as a as a mentor for you was did did he take some of those some of those same um attitudes as sunny boy seemed to take to him well the thing is and this comes out in the movie too um you know at one point annie reigns who's such a wonderful harmonica player you know she says well and then he mentored me as well as uh, as well as um uh, many other people Almost all of, we brought harmonica players in from all over the country, like some of the best in, in, in the world, you know, Curtis Salgado and Mark Hummel and, uh, and uh, you know, Annie Raines, uh, Cheryl Arena, um, 
Um, you know, I just say off the top of my head, Kenny Neal, I mean, and, um, you know, as much as I felt that Cotton mentored me, uh, they also had that sense of mentorship because that's how Cotton was. He was just um, a tremendously um, social, outgoing, wonderful guy. And I think maybe it came because he was an orphan at the age of nine and had nothing. He had no money. He had All he had was one set of clothes and a harmonica. And, you know, became an international icon. But I think that, you know, of course, this is a, you know, amateur psychiatry or psychology or whatever. But I think one of the reasons he was so outgoing and so friendly is because he felt of, of his fellow musicians and harmonica players as, 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 as the family that he never had. So he was like a, a, a mentor to all of us. And, but, you know, but, and we all we we kind of all felt that we were his special guy, you know. But because he was that friendly and outgoing, and, and believe me, in his young days, he was a tough mf, you know. Um, um, he those guys in Chicago, you know, they all carried guns. And they all were tough, you know. It was a, a very competitive world. Um, you know, it was it was you got on the bandstand. You were supposed to head cut the other guy. They used to call it. And Muddy Waters' first band was called the Head Cutters. You know, he drove around the, 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 the south side of Chicago and would sit in when the bands took their break, and he'd try and blow them away, and, and which he did. Um, so anyway, um, so he was an extremely friendly guy, and um, and you know would would. It, you know, there were many times he would come over to my house, and you know we would hang out until the show, and um, and you know he would you know any questions I had about the harmonica or whatever he he would be more than happy to show me what he knew, and of course he knew more about that instrument than practically anyone who's ever lived. I just I find that fascinating only because I know just enough about that Chicago scene to know that most of those guys were pretty hard-nosed uh, hard in the sense that you know it was a competitive scene and they weren't they did they were tough band leaders and tough guys yeah they were and i remember i remember one time uh i think uh, muddy and junior were talking muddy waters and junior <laughs> and junior said well what if i did such and such or whatever and muddy just without batting an eyelash said hey man i'd have to cut you <laughs> You know, if you did that, you know, I'd take out my knife and I'd cut you, you know. But, uh, um, but you know, but that was the, uh, that there was a culture that was thrown into. But individually, you know, when they'd get out on the road and they were away from Chicago and were playing in, in these different cities, they were just um, very approachable, wonderful, nice guys. I, I mean, when they didn't have to be tough, they were extremely approachable. Otis Spann, Muddy Waters, Junior Wells, Buddy Guy, all those guys were extremely approachable. But, you know, when they would get back to Chicago, you know, they would be in the, they'd be back in the, um, in the tough environment on the south side of Chicago, which was like, you know, one of the toughest uh, areas in the United States. You know, it was, it was tough. It's like, like Detroit. I'm in Detroit today. 
And the, downtown Detroit is now one of the hippest places in the world, and I mean that. Um, it, it was number 18 in an in-flight magazine, along with tea in Romania and squid in Cambodia, you know. Um, uh, but, you know, there was a time when I was in Detroit when, when it was a tough, well, it still is a very tough town. But downtown Detroit is just, it's just extremely cool. It's like hipster city, great restaurants, great hotels. You know, you, you don't want to wander too far uh, deep into the city, but if, if you stay in downtown Detroit, it's one of the greatest places in the country right now. So, um, in terms of you know, of your relationship with music, up and coming musicians, and your um, uh, situation now, do you take a lot of what you learn from Cotton and from um, from Muddy and everybody like that in terms of your um, nurturing uh, personality in terms of the way you work with other musicians as well? Yeah, I do. You know, um, I, I, you know, Susan Tedeschi started singing with me when she was like 13 years old, and her, her mom and dad would, would bring her down to shows we were doing in the South Shore in Sisterwit and Narragansett, and uh, not Narragansett, um, Nantasket. Um, and Susan would come down, and, and we'd always make room for her, and, you know, she would usually sing a couple of Bonnie Raitt songs. But, but, but we, whenever Susan, Showed up. We'd always make room for her and, and make sure she got on stage and got a chance to sing in front of a live audience. Um, Nora Jones, producer, brought to me brought her to me when she was seventeen years old, and she had never really sung with a live band before. So, a producer thought it would be good for her to, to get up with a live band and sing in front of an audience. So, you know, we, we did that with Nora Jones and uh, you know Grace Kelly. I met when she was. Uh, 13 years old. I mean, she was already a, a monster player at 13. I think Grace Kelly's the most talented young musician I've ever seen. But, but you know, she was pretty much growing up listening to jazz, and then some of her jazz instructors, you know, said, you know, you should really try and learn how to play blues, too, because it's the basis of all this stuff. So, so Grace Kelly considers me her blues mentor, and I got her up with James Cotton, and I got her up with Huey Lewis. I'm pretty sure I got her up with Steven Tyler, too. But, um, you know, so so there's a lot of young musicians that, that, you know, seek me out. And I just remember growing up, when I grew up, and, and how my idols and, and um, the people that I looked up to were more than happy to uh, let me sit in and all that. And um, so, so I, I always... Um, I used to make room for young for young musicians to come down and sit in and play. There's another guy, Guile Morris. Now he's just such a great guitar player. Uh, he started playing with me when he was an early teenager, and um, you know, there's a bunch of them. And um, and for me, it's rewarding. And of course, in um, in a lot of cases, they've gone on to have better careers than mine, but. But it's hard to say if a career is better or not as long as you um, are making a very comfortable living and enjoying what you do immensely. Um, I mean, that's that, that's what counts. Yeah, I feel like now, you know, there's it. yes, the industry itself is pretty competitive, but it's not about competing. It is about giving 
giving people the opportunity and I and I appreciate folks like you who are doing that for everyone else yeah no it's um you know, it, it, musicians themselves. When when you're playing music, if if you if you sit down to play music with someone, and in your mind it's a competition, uh, you're not going to make good music. It's just that simple. Um, someone's going to end up overplaying. Uh, the groove is going to fall apart. Um, you know, people aren't going to get that feeling that you get when 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 everybody lets go and just and and the music plays you. You don't play the music when when things are going great. When you're having one of those special nights, the, the music ends up playing you. And I know this is true because I, I had a cassette tape years ago. When you and for some of your listeners. Um, these cassette tapes are little tapes that you put in a little <laughs> box and play back and forth. But anyway, uh, <laughs> anyway, so I had a tape that they made of a live performance that I and I was listening to it uh, the next day or whatever. And there was a solo on there. I said, "Wow, I think that's the best solo you've ever played." And then there was part of it that was a little tricky, and so I I put on the cassette tape so I could learn how to play what I had played the night before. And I backed that cassette tape up at least a hundred times, slowed it down, did whatever. And no matter what I did, I could not figure out how to play what I had played the night before. And I knew it was me. It was the tape that I did the night before. So that, that when I say we're having a great night, the music plays you, um, I have proof of that. <laughs> I think that's incredible because I'm a live music guy altogether. All, almost all the music I listen to is all live recorded, and I believe I that you. I believe that exact same thing is that every night should be a little bit different, and you shouldn't be trying to repeat everything. Um, and you know, it's just like having a conversation with you right now. Everything I'm saying is kind of out there into the mist, and I'm not thinking about it too much. And it's all about the ba the back and forth. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. It's like music should be like a, a great conversation with a great friend. Um, you already touched on a couple of things that I was thinking about, but um, just a couple more things. Um, do you have a favorite cotton story? Um, well, I've got quite a few. Um, I guess my favorite cotton story is kind of an in-general one. Um, you know, at one point I was selling a few thousand tickets a night in New England, and so Cotton was coming out here, and we did a double bill where I was a headliner, and um, and and incidentally, that particular show, the first one, at first it was I don't know, it was like a seven or eight day or nine day swing where I, where cotton was opening up for me and I was and I was headlining and, and the first night by the way um, the hotel they put us in in, in, in Connecticut it was one of these one story hotels but by the time they booked my band and my crew and cotton's band and cotton's crew in there we had every room in the hotel <laughs> and and the management left a sign on the door that says if, if you need to get in touch with this past 11 here's the number because in those days they would the management would just leave and um, 
it was uh, it, it's it's a very dangerous thing, and the same same thing happened to me with Charlie Daniels one time. They by the time they booked both of the bands in the hotel, we were in every single room, which leads for a very dangerous and wild and crazy night <laughs> in the hotel. And anyway, so so uh, Cotton opened up opened up for me that night, and I made the the fatal mistake. Uh, it, it, even though I you know I knew how good Cotton was, and I'd seen him play a million times, I made the fatal mistake of watching like. 90% of his show before, you know, when he was opening up for me. And I got on, and I just didn't have that confidence level that I always have. And at the end of the night, I said, you know, James, I, I, I really love headlining um, this tour. But, you know, um, I think for the rest of the dates, I'll go on first. <laughs> um. How have the screenings gone so far? I mean, how was how was the screening in Vermont, by the way? Oh, it was totally. It, these screenings are tremendously successful. Um, you know, for the most part, people come to see them who are blues fans anyway. Um, but we always have ninety uh, percent of the time we have um, a performance aspect following it. You know, oftentimes it's Christine Ullman, the Beehive Queen from Saturday Night Live, who is. Uh, Who's great in the documentary? She just uh, she sings so she does fever and sings her ass off. And then up in uh, up in Burlington, um, Vermont, I, you know, I use uh, David Keller, who's a, an old friend and a, and uh, you know still lives up in that area. But he's become quite a, a national blues act, and and also Chad Hollister, who's a, 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 a guy I've known for probably forty years. And he's also, he has played with everybody, and then he also lives up in that area. So, since we're up in Burlington, I put both of those guys up with me after the show. And, you know, we did a, a 20, 30 minute game after the show, which went great. So, you kind of get a movie in the show, and, and uh, you know, it was sponsored by the Vermont Blues Society. So, you know, it was all these people that loved the music, and, and of course, you know, we have uh, Kev Moe in it, we have Buddy Guy in it, Bobby Rush, who's the most amazing blues guy alive, probably. And Jimmy Vaughn and Steve Miller, you know, I toured with, I, I opened the Joker tour for Steve Miller, so I've known him for years. So, um, you know, we have all these great, uh, Billy Branch, uh, I mean, uh, uh, Curtis Salgado, the number of great blues people in this movie is uh, incredible. It was some of the most remarkable stories you've ever heard. And um, so you know, it, 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 the film always it, 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 the film is always wonderfully received. And, and here again, I'll say it again: we also uh, you know uh, touching on the, the culture of the African American and the problems that the black people had to endure and how they overcame uh, you know the problems that, that they were dealt. So the, the movie is really powerful and um, has great music in it and um, and some of the best uh, well-known blues people talking about not only music but their relationship with James Cotton. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of taken me on yet another spin back through Cotton's music, uh, and now that I know what I'm listening for and I have the frame of reference for him playing, I can hear it a lot better now. I'm not really a harmonica expert of any sort, uh, but now that I know what my, my ear knows what I'm hearing, and I have even the personal relationship from the movie, I, I have a greater respect for it, for sure. 
Oh, um, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. You know, it means a lot. You know, we spent a lot of time on that movie, and um, of course, the editing is is the key. Um, and our editor, Michael Majoros, is, it was just uh, incredible. We had an incredible team, and and you know, uh, I, I've also produced a documentary about my younger brother, who's an LGBTQ activist. And that one, we're just finishing the licensing with now, but that'll be out pretty soon. And he was so successful in the early days when it was dangerous uh, as an advocate and a, someone who was seeking for total equality on every level uh, for LGBTQ um, community that he ended up on the Aryan Nation hit list, and they actually tried to kill him several times and um, um, walked into his office with guns blazing one time and uh, and sawed the wheel off of his car and all this kind of stuff. Um, so that's another powerful movie. And when that comes out, uh, I'll ask you if I can get on your show again. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I would love to watch that for sure. Uh, yeah. Uh, but we, but, it, but it, our team with Michael McDonald's and Buster Cram, Judy Blaster and myself, um, you know, between what I knew about blues and what Judy knew about film festivals and what these two other guys, I mean, they did that movie, Johnny Cash, uh, live at, the, at, at Folsom Prison. Mm-hmm. And when you when you leave that movie, you go, wow, I can't believe all that. All those, you know, seeing Johnny Cash play right at the prison, you know, like, I can't believe it, you know, it's such a great movie. But in fact, there was never any video. It was only an audio recording. But they're so successful as filmmakers and editors by taking live tracks from other performances and then showing still pictures of, of the prison with the um, with the soundtrack from from the prison and everything. You, you you would swear that you saw Johnny Cash play at Folsom Prison, but there was zero video footage of it. So, I mean, these are really successful filmmakers. It's all about telling the story. Um, are yeah, you, yeah, absolutely. Is, is it getting, the last thing I have, um, Is it? are you getting close to being able to officially release on streaming platforms and such? Well, yeah, you know, you know Byron Allen, the... Um, the uh, uh, Comedian who is now, who's also extremely savvy and smart and um, a business person. Um, I think he owns. Uh, you know, I, I knew a while ago, but I'd have to Google it again. But I, you know, I think he's part owner of BET, and he, you know, he, he's on the level of owning networks. Um, so his so his company his, his streaming company is called Freestyle and they picked us up. So um, you know we're going to be yeah, we're going to go into contract with with one of the premier streaming companies in in the, in the country. Um, so I, I think you know I, I think the idea of being on Netflix or and or Amazon I'm not sure how that works I think it's one or the other. But I, but I think the idea of being on Netflix or Amazon is a total reality for us and um you know and then they're going to do streaming and, and then we'll still have theatrical and in terms of theatrical we got a letter from the um the company that distributes black panther 
which was a pretty big movie. And they're interested in, in trying to do theatrical for us. So we, we've got some really uh, big-time players who, who are interested in getting, getting the movie out. And right now we're trying to make arrangements to show at the National Museum of African American Music in Washington, D.C. I mean, it's history, the National Museum of African American History. And here again, you know, we were one of five finalists nationwide Library of Congress, Ken Burns Prize for Film. That doesn't get better than that. No, it does not. That, that sounds to me like you've got a pretty busy and exciting uh, 2024 on deck. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, I appreciate so much you taking some time out of your afternoon here uh, to chat with the with me about the film. Um, I look forward to following its progress into next year and and uh, touching base with you soon about your uh, brother's documentary as well. Yeah, and you know, Ross, you get on my schedule and come come to one of the shows. My band is on fire now. We, we sold out, basically we sold out every show we did in December. I, I keep telling people I'm 74 and I'm still selling out everywhere. Um, and, and the band is just, uh, it, it, I can't tell you how, how much how much fun we're having on stage. It's a, we're having a ball, and I'm and I'm now including at least one horn player on almost all of my shows, so that adds a whole other element. I love that. You know, I've, I've got a great band. I got David Hall, who um, is in the Joe Perry Project and has done four tours as the bass player for Aerosmith, and um, George McCann, best guitar player on the planet, who, who did a tour with the Blues Brothers with with Danny and, and Jimmy. Backward and Belushi, that is. And then, um, you know, Marty Richards, my drummer, was 17. He was playing with Gary Burke, and then he played with um, Duke Robillard and Room Full of Blues, but he was five years with the Jay Giles band. And then the horn player, I usually, if I use one horn player, it's either the Beach Boys horn player or Tina Turner's horn player. So, well, uh, the band is on fire. We're doing great. Next time you're up in Vermont, text me and I'm there. I felt really bad that I wasn't able to get out to, to the screening a couple of weeks we'll, ago. We'll, we'll, dra we'll drag you out to one of these. And now that I've been up to Burlington again and forgot what a absolutely cool town that is. Of course, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to try and book myself up there until July or August. Yeah, but, wait, uh, wait till summertime. <laughs> wait till summertime, but, I, I, but I call Burlington me when you're and, here. Uh, Burlington is, a, is, is one, of the, one of the hippest towns in the Northeast, so we love it up there. Well, when you're, when you're back, I, I guarantee I'll be there next time. Well, I guarantee you will, too, because I'm coming by your house and throwing you in the car. <laughs> I, I felt really bad. I was double booked the night of the, the screen. No, no, listen, don't feel ago. bad. Don't, don't feel bad. We'll do it again. We have, actually, you know, honestly, uh, Judy uh, from the Woodfall Film Festival, I uh, couldn't make it up there with me either. And so she, she wants to, we, we want to go back to Burlington again and show it in the summer, so we're going to try and do that. Let's make it happen. I, I will be here. First round of drinks is on me. Okay, thanks a lot, Russ. And I appreciate you having me back on. I of really course. do. Your, your, your listeners should know that um, it's people like Russ that, that they keep real music uh, out in the forefront, and that's just kind of the problem that you see on the Golden Globe Awards. Well, I, I appreciate that. That's a huge compliment coming from you. Um, yeah. I, I will continue doing my best here, and we'll touch base soon.